0: As a church, we've been thinking about and looking at the need to love one another. Not just because it seems or it sounds like a good idea, but primarily because Jesus has commanded us to live like this within Christian community. And so he said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must also Love one another. So Jesus commanded it. But he also highlighted how this would powerfully communicate who we are to those around us. And so he went on to say, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And so this is an explicit command, but it's also a potentially significant witness. Gary Burge puts it like this Nothing. So astonishes a fractured world as a community in which radical, faithful, genuine love is shared among its members. And so we are now in week four of exploring exactly what this loving one another actually looks like in a local church like Windsor Baptist. And the thing is, we're not left to kind of work out what this looks like for ourselves. Because scattered right throughout the New Testament are various one another's, which clarify, which kind of paint a very colourful and dynamic picture of an authentic, loving community. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it means. And so far, we have looked at confessing our sins to one another, praying for one another, and forgiving one another. Today, we come to a one another that flies in the face of contemporary logic and practice. I think it's fair to say that we live in a society and in a culture that is relatively selfish and individualistic. And the pressure to look out for number one is is pretty strong. One famous quote puts it like this, the force of selfishness is as inevitable and as calculable as the force of gravitation. And so we're sort of constantly bombarded with messages that life is all about me. It's about what I want. It's about what I like. It's about what I need And if you want to get ahead, or if you want to get anywhere in life, then you need to be, or at least it seems that we're encouraged to be, pretty self-centered. And yet, ironically, I think we all know that this mindset, this way of doing life is counterproductive. As Harry Truman once said, selfishness and greed, individual and national, cause most of our troubles and therefore very very few of us actually like this idea this is not a trait that we tend to applaud or admire in others there is nothing particularly attractive about being selfish and yet living differently living beyond ourselves living with an others focused mentality it's actually very very difficult. Because it means swimming against the tide. And it does pose a very real challenge. But in terms of our personal lives and our family lives and our community life together, it is essential that we embrace this challenge to live another's an focused life. It's essential that we actually choose to live alternative life. And the Bible certainly urges us to do that. And as we continue this series, we discover how this morning, how it is we actually go about choosing a different way. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, could I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5? It's page 1172 in the Red Pew Bibles. And we're going to read from verses 13 to 15. And what we normally do, I know there are a number of people visiting us here, but what we normally do at Windsor is for the public reading of God's word, we stand. So could I invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together? Galatians 5, verses 13 to 15. You, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Grab a seat. As... As Christians, we are free. Totally free. That is one of the amazing realities and truths of the Christian faith. We are free to be who we were created to be. We are free from the power and the grip and the crippling effects of sin in our lives. But the Apostle Paul writes to a local church And he reminds us, listen, you can still use your freedom for the wrong reasons. It's your choice. You can still choose to indulge the sinful nature. In other words, you can still choose to be selfish. You can do what you want. You can pursue your own agenda. And a few verses later, if you just glance down at verses 19 to 21, he identifies what this will look like. That if you choose to indulge the sinful nature, if you choose to be selfish, here's what this will lead to. Sexual immorality, impurity, hatred, jealousy, selfish ambition, envy, and the like. And if you look at that list, they're all about me. They're all about self. And so they're damaging. Personally damaging, but certainly damaging at a corporate level. None of those things that you see listed there will enhance community. Envy, division, hatred, all those things wreck and destroy relationships. But you're free to choose to be selfish. And so what is Paul's advice? What what is this better way? How does Paul tell us we should use our God-given freedom? Well, it's simple, or not as the case may be. Here's what Paul says. Serve one another humbly in love. That's it. That's it. That is what we are called to do. And so I want to kind of break that phrase down and come at it from a couple of different angles. To serve, what does that actually mean? Two things. It means to be a slave of. And it means to wait on. And so what we're talking about here and what we're dealing with is this whole idea of becoming and being a servant. And immediately whenever we read this and and explore this, you discover we're talking about a high calling or a low calling, depending on how you look at it. Because to be a servant requires a commitment to downward mobility. A commitment to putting other people first and a willingness to sacrifice. And therefore, at face value within our selfish individualistic culture, this instantly jars. It doesn't sit well. For most people today, this idea of being a servant, to be a slave of, to wait upon people, it just makes no sense. Which is why someone has written, in a world dominated largely by self-interest, the pathway of selfless, sacrificial service is not overcrowded. You could argue that very few people choose to walk this way. Now Paul didn't just express this command to a church. He, He didn't just share this advice. It turns out Paul lived this. And so whenever he was writing to the church at Corinth, he said, I have made myself a slave to everyone. And if we are going to be a loving community, if we are going to truly love one another and reveal to a watching world that we belong to Jesus, then that is the choice, the free choice that every single one of us has got to make. I choose to be your slave. I choose to wait on you. I choose to be a servant. And it is a choice. You're free to choose this way. Or else to look after number one. But whenever it comes to this particular one another, one another, and because we are disciples of Jesus Christ, I think it's really important that we, that we kind of turn to and we listen once again to what Jesus taught about this subject and this issue. And so what I want to do is I also want to take us to John chapter 13. I want to go back to John chapter 13, the chapter where Jesus gives us this new commandment that we read at the beginning. But I want us to revisit the opening scene, verses 1 to 17 of John 13, which is page 1081. Now, we did look at this text four years ago, February 2009. So hopefully some of you might recognize a little of what I'm about to share. But we're back here this morning, and the reason we're back here this morning is because the challenge remains. The challenge remains. And so what we discover as we we start reading here is that Jesus is approaching the end of his all-too-short life. And the thing is, Jesus knows it. He knows that within a matter of hours, he's going to be leaving. He's going to be leaving the people he has loved right to the very end, according to the end of verse 1. He's going to be leaving the people he loved right to the very end. And so in an upstairs room, he shares a meal, a final meal with some of his closest friends. All his disciples are there, including Judas, who's been primed by the devil to betray Jesus. But then something very strange happens. Let's join the story in verse 3. You can keep your seats. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God And that he was returning to God. So Jesus got up from the meal. Took off his outer clothing. And wrapped a towel around his waist. After that he poured water into a basin. And he began to wash his disciples feet. Drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now in this specific culture and we all know this. Whenever people arrived to eat together. we're going to be looking at a a similar situation and event this evening, actually. But whenever people arrived to eat together, they would have needed to wash their feet before they reclined at a low-set table. There there were no chairs. People lay down to eat. And so pre-meal foot washing was an important custom. It was a token of hospitality, but in addition, in a known state in the obvious, but there was a very practical hygienic dimension to bear in mind. Because if feet weren't washed, then you could end up munching your food right next to, or certainly close to, dirt and dust and who knows what else, caked feet. Which was not pleasant, was not good, but it was also not expected. The problem here in John 13 on this particular occasion Is pretty glaring. No one is present. No one has turned up to wash feet. There's no slave. There's no servant in place to carry out this routine task. The water is there. The basin is there. The towel is there. But there's no one to serve. Now as you read between the lines, and I'd love you to try and picture the scene, so go with me on this. The disciples all arrive for the meal. And they file in. And I wonder who was first through the door. And as each one enters the the upper room, it's decision time. The water's there. The basin's there. The towel's there. But there's no foot washer. So what are they going to do? It's a major dilemma. Do they each wash their own feet? Or, even more radical, does one of them step into the foot washer's shoes and offer to wash the rest of the disciples' feet? Well, it seems neither happens. And so they start eating their meal. Jesus has arrived as well, according to verse 2. But then Jesus rises from the table and he does something extraordinary or he does something phenomenally simple. Really straightforward depending on your perspective. But the tension in the room must have been tangible. As the disciples watch Jesus rise, take off his outer clothing, wrap a towel around his waist, go and pour water from a jug into a basin, and then start washing his disciples' feet, individually, lovingly. And they must have been incredibly uncomfortable, embarrassed even. Not because they were having their feet washed. I mean, they had their feet washed all the time. There's nothing uncomfortable about that. What was really unsettling was the fact that Jesus was on his knees performing this dirty little task. And so they probably wished the ground would open up and swallow them. And I wonder how they felt. And as you kind of look into their eyes, what do you see? Do you see agony? Do you see regret? Maybe you even see tears. What is the matter with me? How did I miss this? My whole life revolves around me. It was bad enough that I wasn't humble enough to wash my brother's feet But I wasn't even humble enough to wash my master's feet. And so here he is, on his knees, in front of us, washing our feet. Andrew Kostenberger, commenting on this, writes, Every act of Jesus, described here in excruciating detail, would have been like a dagger in the disciples' hearts, convicting them of their pride, and their refusal to lower themselves to the role of a servant. Now, as you read the story, and many of us are familiar with it, you know that there was always going to be one disciple who wasn't going to sit silently and just let this happen. And surprise, surprise, that one disciple was Peter. And after a brief conversation with Peter, Jesus finishes the task, according to verse 12. And then he speaks into their lives. Pick it up again at the end or middle of verse 12. Jesus says, do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them, you call me teacher, you call me Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And then what Jesus says next in verse 15 is one of those kind of phrases, is one of those teaching moments, is one of those commands that almost needs to be etched into the heart and mind of every one of us who claims to be a self-denying, cross-carrying Christ follower. Here's what Jesus says to them. I have set you an example that you should do As I have done for you. Jesus has set the example. And called us to be his reflection. Unapologetically. Unambiguously. Jesus calls every one of his followers. To serve others. Because he wants us to be a distinctive characteristic. Of people who bear his name. Now Jesus isn't commanding us to literally wash one another's feet this morning. I'm not about to produce a bunch of basins and get everyone to take their socks and shoes. That's not what Jesus is commanding here. But what Jesus is stressing, what he is modeling, is the need for us to adopt a servant attitude. And for some of us self-included, that's actually maybe a more scary thought. And this somewhat shocking incident and it is a shocking incident and sometimes I think we've kind of lost the shock of it but it forever stands as a visual demonstration of the need to lower ourselves in order to meet another person's need Jesus invites us listen live beyond yourself look beyond your own concerns about social status and titles and positions look beyond your wants your desires your rights, and what I'm calling you to do is just serve one another in tangible, practical, and yes, really, really simple ways. So that as we, his followers, walk into rooms and spaces, whether that's at home, at work, at church, wherever we walk into that we ask the question, is there a simple act of kindness I can do here this morning? I can do here this afternoon. Is there a simple act of kindness I can do to serve you? To serve another human being? That as we look for and we take and we grab opportunities that we should do this, Why? Because Jesus has set us an example and because the spirit of Jesus fills our hearts. One writer, and I showed this quote, I think it was in September time, said this, we love, we serve, and we care for others because that is normal behavior for people who are filled with God's spirit. We are Christians Christ was the ultimate servant. We can't help but serve because the spirit of the servant has filled our hearts. When we serve, we are just being who we naturally are. And so let's embrace the example of Jesus and serve one another. But the question is, what is it that kind of gets in the way? What is it that derails our good intentions? Well, I'm sure there there are a number of different things, a number of different reasons, but I reckon that one of the most popular is this, and I know this is how I tend to think. Do you ever feel that there's just so much going on in your own world? So much to contend with in your own life, in your own family life, that the prospect or the challenge of doing something for someone else, of having to turn around and serve someone else, is a, a, a lot of the time... Like a step too far, a bridge too far. I've got enough to contend with, I've got enough to deal with in my own life and in the life of my family, my immediate family, the wider family. Well, I know that that is how it is with me. And yet, whenever I reflect a little further on what was actually going on in Jesus' life and in Jesus' world at this time in John chapter 13 as he washes feet, I find myself humbled and challenged. Because what was going on. Jesus was about to be betrayed by one of his closest friends and he knew that. Jesus was about to suffer intense physical, emotional and spiritual pain in the next 24 hours. His hour had come. He knew that. The prospect of torture, of abandonment and of death was right at the forefront of Jesus' mind as he sat sharing this meal. And yet, in the midst of all of that, in the midst of what was going on in his world, he still chose to serve others. I have set you an example that you should do what I have done for you. See, when it comes to serving, I tend to be quite selective. I'll do it if I feel like it. I'll do it if I'm motivated to do it. I'll do it if I'm in a good place or if I'm having a good day. Or I'll do it if I think I might receive a little bit of attention, get recognized, and get thanked for it. And yet a true servant, it seems, rarely gets any credit. A true servant simply serves and makes themselves available to serve. Which is why, going back to Galatians 5.13, humility is an essential ingredient. Serve one another, says Paul. But here's the bit. Here's the bit. Humbly in love. It was Augustine who said, those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second thing, humility is the third thing. You see, humility protects me from being self-centered. Humility reminds me To consider others, but not only to consider them, to put them first. And so Paul writes these infamous words to the church in Philippi. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. I really struggle with that. In humility to consider others better than myself. Myself, Which at so many levels is totally unnatural. Which is why I believe the Bible teaches us to seek humility. It's why the Bible teaches you to clothe yourself with humility. It's why Jesus said you've got to humble yourself. In other words, it's a choice you make. To a choice. And at the end of the day, what I discover about life and the Christian life as well is that it boils down to a whole bunch of choices. And so in Philippians 2, whenever Paul was writing about Jesus, he said this. Your attitude, David, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who did what? Who humbled himself. So the question is, am I prepared to do Am I prepared to seek humility, clothe myself with humility, humble myself? It's my call. And so as we think about this one another here at Windsor or within any Christian community, we're urged to use our God-given freedom to serve one another humbly in love, to choose to follow the example of Jesus. And as I bring this to a close this morning, I do want to end on a positive note Two kind of positive notes. Because as I look around this morning, I want to celebrate the fact that lots of people are doing this. There are people who, for the last hour, hour and a bit, have served us. Whether it's been deacons who have opened up, stuck the lights on, sorted the place out, whether it's Simon down at the back doing the PA, whether it's all the musicians who have been here since quarter past nine. Practising and leading us in our worship, whether it's people over in the creche looking after our kids so that we could be in here listening to God's word, junior church teachers next door, people who were here early to stick flowers out, people who have chosen to serve one another humbly in love. And so I just want to say thank you for being a church that serves one another but let's all pursue this with a renewed intention. And I want to finish with this amazing promise. Because if we choose to do this, and as I say, I'm absolutely, totally convinced it's a choice we each have to make. But if we choose to love like this, listen to the promise of Jesus. And we're back to John 13. This is verse 17. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. If you follow the example of Jesus in serving others, you'll be blessed. Jesus makes this blanket, across the board, no exception, promise that towel bearers and foot washers and those who have got servant hearts, those who live beyond themselves, they will become recipients of God's sovereign blessing and divine favor. What? An incentive. And so we follow the one who came not to be served, he said, but to serve. And as we walk out through those doors in a moment, or as we hang around here and drink coffee together, let me invite you to symbolically pick up a tile and go and wash someone's feet this morning. Go and serve someone. Whether well, it is, going and speaking to Heather and saying, here, listen, I'd like to serve on the first Tuesday night of every month over in the international meeting point. Or maybe it is, listen, you sit there. I'll go and queue up and get your coffee this morning. Well, let's pray together. <laughs> Father, as, as people who have chosen to follow Jesus, deny self, pick up our cross and walk in his footsteps. I pray that you would help us to be a community that loves one another through serving one another humbly in love. Help us, God, to use our freedom to do that. Not to indulge the sinful nature, not to be selfish, but to become a community that is others-focused. And so today, I ask that you would help us to do this in humility and with your help. In Jesus' name, amen.